Thank you, Julia. Good morning. Next Sunday, we'll be in Joshua chapter 24. That'll be the last message in Joshua. I know, I've enjoyed this too. And then April 3rd, uh, Jared's gonna be preaching on April 3rd, and then I'll be back on the 10th because we'll be looking at uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday, and then of course on the 17th, Resurrection Sunday. So. And that's what it's all about. So next week, um, Jared is going to finish out our series. And the reason is, is because um, it's going to be my wedding anniversary and I'm going to take Shelly away. This kind of came up, this opportunity. I'm not going to tell you how many years we've been married, but we got married at 12. And so it's a lot, you know. Um, but I appreciate that, and Jared will do a great job. And today we're in chapter 9, and we're going to look at chapter 10 and 11. And uh, then beyond chapter 11, everything becomes about the allotment of the lands to the tribes. So that's why we're going to move to chapter 24. So um, this morning, I want to introduce you to the Gibeonites. They're the focus of chapter nine. Gibeon is a, it's a place. Gibeon is a place. So I can't very well say Visaliaites, but that's kind of comparable to Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are actually Hivites and they come from Gibeon. And I assume that's related to Gibeah, which is a hill, but it's a place name. And there are four they're called cities. They might be like large villages, but they are made up of people who are Hivites, and we call them the Gibeonites. When, and I think the, the Hivites of Gibeon are really kind of a special people, and I want to explain why today, because I find them to be an admirable people. Now, if you know anything about the Gibeonites, that may be hard to swallow, especially when we ourselves are daily attacked or at least uh, assaulted by scam artists. I get three to four scam calls a day. I don't know how many times my car insurance has lapsed. <laughs> don't fall for this stuff. Just block those numbers and move on. But it does, you know, it kind of burdens my heart because uh, I do think of folks who maybe aren't very internet savvy or they aren't aware of these people who, who scam by... Uh, passing themselves off as official representatives of our bank or our, our insurance company. Oh, I've won thousands and thousands of dollars from um, <laughs> a number of big organizations. If only I'll click on that link that they want me to click on so that then they can gain information on who I am and then scam me. But don't fall for that, but you might resent the Gibeonites because in a way they could be called scam artists. 
Because in many ways, they trick the people of Israel. They trick the leadership, particularly, of Israel. They trick Joshua. Um, And that's what I want us to talk about. But they do it not because they're scam artists. They do it because their only hope is the Lord. That's why they do it. They only have one chance. Just think about that. I I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you just had like one chance. Um, You had one last bat, so to speak. And the odds were completely against you. For the Gibeonites, there's just one door. It's a narrow door, and it doesn't even have a door handle. And they've got to get through that door if they're going to get to the Lord. And the Lord is their only hope. It's the only door available to them. So, They have one last bet, and they're going to put it all on the Lord, and they're going to go for it. Let's see what they do to get through that door in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon... The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, when they all heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And you may recall that Moses gave the people instructions for people who lived at a distance so to speak, uh, not to Larry, uh, but Reno, Nevada. You know, someone in Arizona as opposed to the county of, uh, that we live in. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we had heard a report of him. And all that he did in Egypt 
And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Siah, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. And you notice he doesn't mention Jericho, and he doesn't mention I. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now... Behold, it's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them. Behold, they have burst. And these garments, sandals of ours, worn, are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but they did not ask from the Lord. Today, as I said, we meet the Gibeonites and they make it very clear that they are there for the Lord, but they omit the fact that they're neighbors. They're from, say, Tulare and not Arizona or Nevada or some faraway place. But they look to the Lord. And it is a strong reminder to us. You know, we can get cluttered with all kinds of uh, Bible lessons and knowledge. Uh, we can be caught up in all kinds of of divisive arguments and things that occupy our hearts and our minds, but let us never, ever look to other things in the place of the Lord. Sometimes we get so familiar with the Lord that we forget that when we talk about looking to the Lord, we're looking to him as our hope, our life, Indeed, the full meaning of the word Lord. And that's what these Hivites, these Gibeonites are doing. They seek a covenant. We would call it a peace treaty, but it is a pact. It's a covenant. And they seek the covenant that can be one with the Lord through Joshua and the leaders of Israel. And they also, as we will see, we didn't read about it, but three days after they do make this covenant, Joshua and the leaders of the people learn that they are not from the other end of Visalia, but they're from Arizona or Nevada. No, they're, right, they're very close, not far away. And so they realize that they've, they've been lied to. And so they receive a curse in verses 22 through 23 from, from uh, Joshua. And, and they take that curse all to serve the champion, the Lord, who can save them. And we'll look at those three things. Let's look first at the covenant, and we can see that in verse 6, and again in verse 15. But before we look at that covenant that's made, I want you to notice something about the Gibeonites that opens this chapter. Note the contrast between all the kings in verse 1 and 2. All the kings, and then 
In fact, it says in one, in 1 and 2, when all the kings heard, they united as one to fight Joshua. When all the kings, so that represents all the peoples, but particularly their leaders. And the leaders lead the people. You know, when we think of Zelensky, we think of the people of the Ukraine. But when we think of President Putin, sometimes we forget that not all the people represent the heart of the president of Russia. But people follow. People live under his rulership. Here we have all the people of all the territories represented in their kings, and they are united against Joshua and the people. But in verse 3, notice the similar wording. Instead of when all the kings heard, it's when the Gibeonites heard, and then they says they did something very clever. They did something very clever. In the English Standard Version, <clears throat> in verse 4, it says something cunning. But this word, or ma in Hebrew, it occurs just five times in the Old Testament. It occurs three times in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 1, verse 4, and then again in chapter 8, verse 5 and 12. And each time it's used there, it's used of prudence. Prudence. That's a good thing, wouldn't you say, to be prudent? It's associated with wisdom. But in Exodus chapter 21, verse 14, it's used of treachery because in that context, it's used of plotting a murder. And so the same word orma there refers to the cunning involved in treachery in the act or pursuit of committing murder. So we have to judge how it's being used here. It could be translated cunning, but you heard me say they acted cleverly. They acted, as it were, in a very shrewd way or even prudent way, given their circumstances. They sought a covenant of peace for only the Lord could save them. Only the Lord could save them. And they were stuck between the Amorite kings all the kings who had decided with one mind to fight Joshua and Israel. But they knew the Lord was the real victor. They knew what had happened in Ai because Gibeon is not far from Ai. In fact, some find it interesting that in verse 1, and I find this interesting too because I was reading it and it doesn't tell us what the kings heard. It just says they heard, but we don't know what. And so we suppose that when we get 
later into the passage and even with the Gibeonites, but they, they heard immediately because they're very near Ai. You remember there were two attacks on Ai. The first one ended in Israel's defeat. That news got out and circulated among the peoples before the follow-up repeat in which Israel defeated Ai. So it's possible the kings were emboldened to attack Joshua and Israel. But from the Gibeonites, we realize they learned that they had defeated Ai, and so God has a winning record, as it were, and they've put all of their money on the Lord. That's kind of a, maybe not a spiritual way to talk about it, but that's the way we think when we have no other choices. We've got to bet it all. We've got to lay it all on a certain number and hope for the best. Well, you always win when you hope in the Lord, and that's what the Gibeonites are doing. Well, they, they achieve this covenant, and then the Israelites later, three days later, learn that they've been duped. They've been tricked. And the people of Israel are very upset, and so they head toward Gibeon. They're going to take it out on them. And Joshua and the leaders who made this covenant, which is a treaty or a pact, you make a covenant if you get married. That's a covenant. A lot of us enter into business treaties. The difference, I think, between a contract and a covenant is that contracts, I think they tend to cause us to look for reasons to capitalize on, on our partner's failure to meet or comply with all of the agreements of, of the contract. But a covenant, well, the Lord is known for his chesed, his loyal love. And so he stands by his covenant even when the partner in the covenant, well, how many times do we read in the prophets how God was faithful to Israel even though Israel was unfaithful to the Lord? Well, here in Joshua chapter 9, when the people march toward this area of Gibeon and they're going to take it out on the Hivites, Joshua and the leaders stop them because they made a covenant with the Gibeonites. But Joshua does ask in chapter 9, verse 22, he summoned them and he said to them, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? You lied to us. Now, therefore, you are cursed. And some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants. This is their answer, very important. Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, 
We are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So they take the curse. Yeah, we'll take that. I mean, something's better than nothing. I mean, only pride could cause us to settle for nothing when we could get something, right? In Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16, a little, it says. Let me read it to you. In Proverbs 15, 16, it says, a little with the fear of the Lord is better than great wealth and terrible anxiety. Better is a little fear of the better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth, or to be vastly rich and just troubled by anxiety and worry and all of the difficulties of life. I think the Gibeonites are very happy to be in the hand of Joshua, to be in the hands of the leaders of Israel. Because when you're in the hands of people who follow the Lord, there's a level of justice that you don't find in the rest of the world. There's a place of mercy. There's a place of goodness where people keep their word. They made this covenant and they didn't break it because they made it To people who lied, they made it in good faith, they made it in the name of the Lord, and that meant something to Joshua and the leaders, and they wouldn't break that. And that's extremely important, and that should characterize his people. In verse 24, we saw that they were aware of their destiny. We either go with the kings and die, or we do something very wise, something prudent, (laughs) something clever to get them to realize that we believe in their God. He's the Lord, not the kings of this land, not the tyrants who make decisions for their people. We want the Lord to be our Lord, our King are sovereign, and will do anything to do that. This is a merciful curse, by the way, don't you think? They're going to they're gonna carry water and chop wood for the Lord. They're going to serve in the sanctuary of the Lord. That's their curse. They're going to be at the heart of what unifies all the people of Israel, Every time the Israelites actually come together as one, they come together as one in the name of the Lord at his sanctuary. And who's there to serve that? Serve the Lord and serve the people, the Gibeonites. That's a pretty good trade. That's a merciful one. There's grace there. And that's a merciful curse. But they are serving the champion. And we see that in verse 24 and 25. In verse 25 and also in verse 27, but he says, we are in your hand, whatever seems right and good. When people actually look to the Lord, 
there's justice. The Lord's character creates an expectation of fairness. You know, even though they don't know the Lord like the Israelites do, when you may seek the Lord for some wrong reasons, but I would say seek the Lord. If you keep seeking the Lord, if you keep loving the Lord, with the little that you know, if you keep pursuing that, you'll not be bereft. It will take you somewhere. And don't be fooled. And there's something powerful in the seeking of the Lord. Sometimes we have all the knowledge, but we've, we've lost that desire to seek the Lord, to look to the Lord, to call upon the Lord. Sometimes he's choice number five or ten, or if things didn't work out, based on our own ingenuity, we turn to the Lord. This is a reminder to pursue the Lord. And the Gibeonites, where are they put? Right at the heart of the worship and service of the Lord. That's where your pursuit of the Lord will take you. And when we do that, I think it strips away incidentals and puts them in perspective so that we can handle them in a more just and appropriate way. I'm impressed with the Gibeonites. They look to the Lord. It reminds me of Rahab on a much grander scale. And you may have noticed that what's good or what is for good is done in the Lord's name. The leaders will not violate their promises made in the Lord's name. They even stand against their own people to protect the Gibeonites in verses 18 through 23. And the covenants are kept even though they realize they were, so to speak, cheated into it through falsehood. They won't violate what they said they would do and did in the name of the Lord. In fact, that extends into chapter 10. And that's very important. Because in chapter 10, after the Hivites, the delegation, by the way, they don't have a king. It's an interesting phenomenon within the book of Joshua that these Hivites, they're kind of more democratic, as it were. They have appointed leaders, and it's, it's more of a, some even think that they come, or descendants, or travelers, or some connection with Greece, which was, you know, a more uh, frank, open speech people full of representatives, but they return to their cities and it's there then that the kings learn that they've made a pact with Israel. And so the, Gibeon, the, the Hivites, the Gibeonites, they, they appeal to Joshua and Joshua and the troops actually defend them in chapter 10. They're fighting for the Gibeonites against the Amorite kings. And it's there in those verses that Joshua calls upon the Lord. And the scripture put, says that the, the sun and the moon stood still, extended the day by standing still. But that would actually mean, because the sun always stands still. The moon, you know, it's, we're moving. But God obviously slowed the rotation of the earth in such a way that 
they were able to gain the victory because the son, as scripture says, stood still. And at another point, God rained hail on some of the Amorite troops and armies and caused a great turmoil and killed many of them. So God gave Joshua the victory. Now, that's important because we're haunted by that verse 14. In fact, I really struggled with this this week because it says that they sampled. It could have been they sampled their food or they checked their stuff. They were told that they'd been a long journey, but they actually examined the things that they brought, the food that they brought. And it passed the taste test and the eye exam. But they didn't ask the Lord's advice. But they didn't break the Lord's advice, but they didn't ask for it. So what's the answer here? Did they make this covenant with the Gibeonites because they didn't turn to the Lord and look to the Lord, as verse 14 would indicate? Let's start at the end of this conquest. This conquest, as I said, ends in chapter 11. The rest has to do with allotments. If there are skirmishes, they go tribe by tribe. And you could call them panels in the way sometimes this is an Old Testament narrative way of doing things. Sometimes they'll give you a summary and then they'll give you, and it seems like they're repeating themselves, but they're elaborating or like scenes in a movie. While you're looking at one scene, then you go over and you pick up another scene and you start to begin to understand the the kind of the three-dimensional nature of the plot. But let's look at chapter 11. And I want us to end, begin with the very ending, which is verse 23. 11 verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments and the land had rest from war. So there's the end, if you will, of the conquering of Canaan. Now let's go backwards. So let's go now back to 19 and 20. And in 19 and 20, we learn that there was not one city. Now understand, in other words, there's not one people that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all. In other words, all the other peoples, all the other cities they took in battle except one, the Hivites of Gibeon. So let's now, uh, let me go to verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. I take the words to harden their hearts as an announcement of their enemy's opposition to God, and that it was irreversible. 
meaning any promptings to turn to God only hardened their hearts or solidified their opposition to God. Now, when it says their hearts were hardened in opposition to God, that tells me that the Gibeonites, the Hivites of Gibeon, did not have their hearts hardened because they are distinguished from all the other peoples that were conquered in the process of Canaan. They were the only ones that made peace with Israel. And Joshua is said to have carried out everything Moses required of him. So I believe that even though they did not consult the Lord, that in verse 14, we are to understand in the light of what the scripture itself says, that they did not do anything that could not be done when they made this peace with the Hivites. And that is why I say, I admire the Hivites. I would like to be a Hivite, to put it on the line so that I look to the Lord. We all gain wisdom. We all become more savvy and clever. But do we do it and use it? in the full pursuit of the Lord. Look to the Lord. Tuesday I was asked if God has an intrinsic purpose. Questions like that actually do make my brain hurt. And I'm a person who really has to think twice and I'm a person that has to put in a lot of extra work to accomplish what other people do with ease. The answer, though, after much thought, the answer, in my humble opinion, is yes, God does have an intrinsic purpose. His intrinsic purpose corresponds to his being, to his nature, which is good. And therefore, God's intrinsic purpose is to do good. He is good, and all that he does is good. You might know in ancient philosophy, and even in modern philosophy, good is the question that is at the center of philosophical inquiry and pursuit. And good is usually spoken of, once it's identified, as the highest good, the ultimate end, purpose, or pursuit. God reveals his nature in two great events. The first is the creation. And you know from reading Genesis, I mean, you can look at the creation itself. I kind of worship the creation as a, as a guy who was a long way from church, long way from the faith of his mother. But I love the creation. I loved its beauty. I loved the way it just operated in harmonious regeneration and perfection. And so beautiful and so plentiful and so fruitful. Creation is a beautiful emblem of the very nature of God. But there's another great revelation of God. And that is his greatest revelation, Jesus Christ. When Jesus was asked, good teacher, Jesus quickly responded and said, nobody's good but God and God alone. And yet, that God, the Father, said, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. 
Jesus epitomizes God's love. And what is the thrust of God's love? If someone is seeking one's own good, there's a distinction with God's love in my thinking in that God's love seeks not one's own self-interest, but what is the betterment or the good of another ahead of oneself. That's epitomized in the Lord Jesus. And it's confirmed. It would just be a noble life. I mean, the most ignoble, dishonorable death, most painful, reserved for the lowest, the lowest of people. And Jesus suffered that. What was its good? It would, it would be the absurdity and futility of his, of his own love, a love for the greater good of others, that it should all end in this huge failure. Unless he rose from the dead, and he did. That's the power and the importance of the resurrection. It shows the purpose. It, sh- it, v- it vindicates, it validates this love of God, this good, which is redemptive. And we need to get that in our crosshairs. This love, which is self-sacrificing, is the good of all-powerful God. And this is what we see when we look to the Lord. There's a song years ago, Bob Dylan wrote it, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. In a lot of ways, we use that expression of being close to death. I guess in that sense, you know, we're always knocking on heaven's door. But there is a very positive, constructive way in which we can think about it as if we're going to knock down that door, if it's the last thing I do because the Lord is the only one that I believe is the Lord God of all. And he has a heart for me. And he wants to save me. And he wants to make good of me. That's what each of us need to be doing and hold close to our heart as we look to the Lord. Let me pray for us and then We'll sing a final song. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. You are good. All good is good because of you. Thank you for making us in your image. And thank you for remaking us in the image of your Son, the new creation that is ours in Jesus Christ. We praise you in Jesus' matchless name. And all of God's people said, amen.